I don't know about you, but when I was little, I used to be afraid of the dark. In fact, afraid probably is not a strong enough word for what I experienced as a young boy. Actually petrified, uh, scared stiff, panic-stricken might be more accurate descriptions of, of me and this thing called the dark. Uh, technical terms for the condition include designations like scotophobia, ligophobia, and nyctophobia. You ever heard those words? Scotophobia is fear of the dark. Ligophobia, fear of twilight, so approaching dark. And then nyctophobia, that's fear of the night. All variations on a single theme, though, right? Now, we need to be careful with terms like these, with designations, with diagnoses like these, since using them can run the risk of communicating that we are afflicted with them in the same way that a person might be diagnosed with a bacteria or a, or a virus, which is untrue. Fear of the dark is a type of heart disease, but it's not that type of heart disease, if you catch my drift. Now, if we could go back and begin to track through the various reasons that I developed such an intense fear of the dark, I think that we might begin to discover some pretty obvious roots. Uh, for one thing, when I was a little boy, I did not know God. I knew about God. I knew there was a God, but that's a far cry from actually knowing God, like in the J.I. Packer sense of that word. In fact, if you haven't read it, that's a book that you, you owe yourself to read, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. In fact, uh, now that I've mentioned a title, let me give you a taste of this book because in the opening uh, section of this book, Packer makes a statement where he does a phenomenal job describing the first 21 years of my life in the dark prior to knowing Jesus. In the opening pages of Knowing God, Packer writes, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction or understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and you can lose your soul. Isn't that powerful? So for certain far and away, the single greatest factor in my fear of the dark was bound up with the fact that I simply did not know God. Now add to that the fact that I grew up in an entire household of individuals who did not know God and that I was the youngest of five children. As the youngest of five children in an unbelieving home, I found myself exposed to experiences that it's possible that not a lot of other kids my age had. For instance, by the time that I was still in grade school, I had seen Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, along with The Exorcist, Poltergeist, and Halloween. I'm sure that didn't help. And on top of that, some of the chores that I was assigned around the house brought me routinely into situations where, guess what? I had to make my way into the dark. 
Um, for example, when it was time to put away groceries, it seemed to be that I was the person that was typically tasked to go down to that foreboding basement fridge and put away things into the fridge and the freezer. Now, you know how this works. There are some light switches that precede you into a room, but there are other ones, particularly when you're in an unfinished basement, it's just that bare light bulb and that little string hanging there, which isn't intimidating enough. You have to go through the darkness to get to that light, turn it off, and leave through the darkness again. Furthermore, I was the one in the family with the assignment to empty out the house garbage and bring the garbage cans to the gara- from the garage to the street corner on the night before pickup, which I recall was once a week, but once they developed this thing called recycling, then it was another week out to the garage again. While I'm sure it was just my overactive imagination, you would have had a hard time convincing me that Norman Bates and Reagan McNeil and Michael Myers didn't all three live in my garage especially on garbage and recycling nights. So suffice it to say, I had plenty of opportunities as a little boy to confront my fear of the dark. At the same time, there is a way, I think, that we can think about darkness that we are wise to consider on a morning like this one. And it's summed up in a text that we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 19. In John 3, 19, Scripture says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. And we say, what? What on earth? This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Really? And the answer, as we all know, is yes, really, because In Holy Scripture, sin is a shapeshifter. It takes on all sorts of forms. Uh, Sin is, is idolatry. Sin is spiritual adultery. Sin is foolishness. Sin is like a beast on the prowl for us. Sin is like an illness. And sin is darkness. It is deep, deep darkness. At the same time, 1 John 1.5 tells us that God in Christ is light. Now, if we read John 3.19 this way, it begins to ring with a little bit more familiarity. This is the judgment. Christ has come into the world, and people loved their sin rather than Christ. Does that frighten you? It ought to. If you think about it, particularly when we begin to consider the promises of God in Christ and the ghastly horror of the sin that indwells us, the real question for us this morning is, why aren't we afraid of the dark? You know what I mean? When we begin to bathe our minds in biblical theology, the question is, why aren't we afraid of the darkness? Why aren't we more afraid of the darkness as Christians? 1 John 1.6 warns us that if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. That ought to wake us up if we're not awake yet. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. In the passage that Eric just read for us, we are introduced to the betrayal and arrest of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before his crucifixion. And there's darkness everywhere we look. There's darkness in the betrayer. There's darkness in the disciples. 
There's darkness in the religious leaders. And truth be told, there's, there's a measure of darkness, of course, in each one of our hearts. If sin is darkness, then we are indwelt by darkness. Nevertheless, this passage is a gift to us because as Psalm 119, verse 130 says, the unfolding of your word gives what? Gives light. Isn't that encouraging? So the scripture text before us is designed to shine that light in three different ways into the darkness within. And just a note on these three points as I, as I prepared them. The first one is, is far and away the longest. Second one is, is quite a bit shorter, and the third one is, is almost non-existent. I think it's going to have to wait till next week because it's going to dovetail well with what we'll talk about there. But let's get to it. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So Jesus came to shed light into the darkness, number one, of spiritual apostasy. Jesus came to shed light into the darkness of spiritual apostasy. Trusting that your Bibles are open to Luke 22, would you look with me at verses 47 and 48? Luke 22, 47 to 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Verse 47, we see the phrase, while he was still speaking. While he was still speaking. So remember where we left off in our text last week. Jesus is on his knees. Jesus is covered in sweat. He is wrestling with God in prayer. He is submitting his own human will to the divine will for us and for our salvation. And he's just asked, as well as warned his slumbering disciples, he said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So while he was still speaking these words, do you position our text today? We begin to see a crowd gathering. There came a crowd. Verse 47 notes three truths about Judas in particular relative to the crowd, each one more disgraceful than the next. First, Luke reminds us that Judas was one of the 12. Now, he didn't have to say that. We know that by now. This isn't any information we didn't have previously, so clearly Luke is making a point. He's offering this phrase for emphasis. Uh, Church father Cyril of Alexandria observes Luke's noting that Jesus is one of the 12 is to demonstrate more fully the guilt of the traitor's crime. Exactly. That's exactly right. Contemporary scholar Daryl Bach agrees with this, and he adds, Judas is identified as one of the 12 in order to magnify the horror of this act. Amen. That's, That's precisely why Luke uses these four words, one of the 12. And moreover, Luke doesn't merely remind us that Judas is one of the 12, but he, he points out the position that Judas takes relative to the crowd. You see that? Notice that Judas isn't one of the crowd. Judas wasn't simply in the midst of the crowd, and he certainly isn't just following the crowd as if he'd fallen in with the wrong crowd. No, Judas is leading the crowd. 
how did he know where to lead them? You know how he knew? Because just like we learned last week, Jesus' devotional life was like clockwork. Recalling that verse 39 begins, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. What we discover here is that Judas uses this intimate knowledge of our Lord against him. How did he know that where Jesus would be? Because his Lord's meetings with the Father were so predictable, you could tell time by them. Without a doubt, Jesus is retreating to an out-of-the-way location at night like this. It makes him much easier pray for Judas and for the crowd. But what's he going to do? I mean, miss his time with his father? You know who Jesus reminds me of here? Daniel. Daniel in chapter 6. You remember what gets Daniel thrown into the lion's den at the end of the day? It's his devotional life. Daniel chapter 6 tells us that the high officials in Babylon drew up a legal document for King Darius to sign that forbade the worship of any other god but him. And what we read by way of response in Daniel 6.10 is easily one of my favorite verses in the book of Daniel. His reply to this law is one for the ages. We read in Daniel 6.10 that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Don't you hear the echoes of Daniel in the devotional rhythms of Jesus? Daniel 6.10 and Luke 22.39 are singing the same song. And in both cases, wicked people exploit pious people for self-serving purposes. Judas wasn't just part of the crowd. Judas led this crowd. He led them straight to Jesus because he knew where he would be. Finally, verses 47 and 48 famously report how it is that Judas marks Jesus out for his arrest. The text says that he drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? That was interesting. In the original, the word for kiss is thrown forward in the sentence. It it does that for emphasis. And so a literal rendering then of Jesus' words to Judas in verse 48 is, Judas Kissing the Son of Man, you would betray him? This kiss, though a familiar greeting in the first century, becomes in this moment an exquisitely hurtful and insulting way for Judas to complete his betrayal of Jesus. Those of you who may know and listen to the music of of theologian and singer-songwriter Michael Card might be familiar with his, his poignant song on this very text that captures this, a song just titled, Why? W-H-Y, Why? In the opening verse, Michael Card reflects, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain, and only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it's awful. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, just like Judas did. We don't practice the truth. So Jesus came to shed light. You see, that's what he's doing with his words. He's shedding light on the acts of Judas here, shedding light into the darkness, in this case, of spiritual apostasy. Now, Judas is obviously a negative example of apostasy. Esau is another. Uh, Demas, who's mentioned only three times in the New Testament, is yet one more negative example of apostasy. But we might ask the question to put a positive spin on this and to be encouraging in kind of a desperate text this morning. Can it ever be stopped? Like, once the cancer of apostasy has begun to spread in an individual or in a church, can it actually be, can the drift be arrested? Can it be held back and neutralized or restrained or even turned around and headed in the other direction? Well, early last week, the second largest Protestant denomination in our country met for a special session of their general conference, which typically only meets once every four years. I'm speaking, of course, of one of the movements that I grew up in, the United Methodist Church that I know well from the inside out. One of my brothers is a United Methodist pastor today. The United Methodist Church has for nearly 40 years debated the question of whether or not to perform so-called same-sex marriages in their denomination and whether, to, whether or not to accept the ordination of homosexuals into the pastorate, into the clergy. And over the years, the number of United Methodists in North America who desire such a change has, has grown. It's grown extraordinarily. Now make no mistake, either to participate in or even to affirm such measures is tantamount to apostasy according to the New Testament. Though we could turn to a lot of places in the scriptures to demonstrate it, suffice it to say that the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, and 8 that those who engage in or bless sexual perversions do not know God. They disregard God. Now, at the same time, owing to an historic commitment to missions and evangelism over the years, the United Methodist Church hasn't just grown liberally here in the North American context, but it's grown globally, particularly into areas of Asia and especially in particular in the continent of Africa. Here in the States, the United Methodist Church is shrinking numerically. That's putting it mildly. I mean, apart from some pockets of solid conservatism here in the U.S., the United Methodist Church has been hemorrhaging members for a generation now. Whereas overseas, because of their passion for the gospel, as well as evangelism and discipleship and leadership development and vigorous church planting, the United Methodist Church is exploding in growth, especially in Africa. Now, these global believers have come to represent a greater and greater number of delegates to the general conference. Now, the more theologically liberal and progressive United Methodists in our nation knew this, and they looked toward their next scheduled general conference, which was, in 20, was to be in 2020, and with the projected growth of the global south, their fear was that this was the last opportunity to try and make a sea change in the Methodist church with regard to homosexuality. 
They became convinced that this was it. This was the last moment for the full inclusion and affirmation of LGBTQ persons. Hence last week's meeting in St. Louis, Missouri. Well, the upshot of the general conference is this. The conservative evangelical believers within the United Methodist Church were able to hold the line and defeat a very dangerous move to adopt a plan that would have essentially killed discussion and said, let's agree to disagree about this, which, which means that the more liberal position wins by default. Well, the reverse occurred. In the words of Al Mohler, he says, understand what happened in St. Louis, Missouri. A major mainline Protestant denomination in the United States said no to the sexual revolution. It's never happened before. It happened last week, and we had better pay close attention. And the result, after the better part of a hundred years of, of reigning theological liberalism and apostasy from the gospel in the United Methodist Church, it looks to be a battleship that once sinking and heading in the exact opposite direction looks to be a battleship that is now being repaired, outfitted with a new crew, and turned 180 degrees in the right direction. It's a breathtaking turn of events. These changes, of course, won't happen overnight. Obviously, we don't know the future. It doesn't take a profit, though, to look at the United Methodist Church and in our nation and consider the road ahead and offer, begin to offer profound praise and glory to God for this rescuing of this historic movement. So, so what's the lesson for the evangelical free church as we look at the United Methodist Church? One lesson for a church like ours has surely got to be 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let he who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And let's remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders standing on the beach in Miletus from Acts 20, 28 to 31. Pay talking to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained for his, with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So Jesus came to shed light into the darkness of apostasy and he did it last week in St. Louis to much good effect. And he'll do it in our church if necessary. Second shorter point today. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we, we lie and we don't practice the truth. So Jesus came to shed light into the darkness of missional coercion. Jesus came to shed light into the darkness of missional coercion. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's find out. Would you look with me at chapter 22, verses 49 to 51? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, 
They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. So Jesus came to shed light into the darkness of missional coercion. See, Judas wasn't the only person in the dark in this moment. The disciples find themselves in the shadows as well, don't they? On the one hand, they're they're clearly feeling threatened. Luke tells us in verse 49 that those who were around him saw what would follow. Literally, verse 49 is something like they saw what was going to be. The disciples aren't blind. They can read the handwriting on the wall here with the crowd moving in, Judas leading them. And so they cry out to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And notice they don't wait for a response. Verse 50 tells us, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Luke doesn't give us any more than that. But John fills in a really interesting detail. In John 18.10, we read, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. And John even tells us the servant's name. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, what's Jesus' assessment of all this? Well, suffice it to say, he's not impressed. Luke writes in verse 51, But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Jesus says, no more of this. It's, you could translate it, let go of this. Leave it alone already. Stop, no more of this. It's, it's quite possible that this left Jesus' disciples not a little bit baffled because two weeks ago, didn't he counsel them to buy a sword? Luke verse 36, now the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy one. And here, just 15 verses later, the same evening, Jesus chastises them and reprimands them for using the sword. What's going on here? I think it's pretty clear. It is not clear for the disciples here in this moment, but for us, 2,000 years on the other side of this moment, there should be a little bit more clarity. Um, Whatever Jesus meant precisely in verses 36 and 38 saying to buy a sword and it is enough when they show him two swords. Whatever he meant by that, clearly he disapproved of the use of the sword in order to carry out their mission, according to verse 51. So what was Peter doing? I'd like to say at best he was retaliating, but it doesn't appear that they had struck yet. This is what Peter does, right? Recalling the language of verse 49 then, those who were around him saw what would follow and Peter attacked the high priest servant with a sword, hacking off his right ear. I'd love to say he was defending the Lord, but so far as I can tell, the events hadn't unfolded that far yet. So this isn't a retaliative strike as much as it is a preemptive strike. But Jesus isn't having any of it. And in Matthew 26, 52, Jesus is crystal clear. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And as if to put a a silent exclamation point on what he had just told his disciples, in Luke 22, 51, he says that, it says that he turned to the high priest's servant and he touched his ear and he healed him. Fascinatingly, it's, it's the last miracle that Jesus performs in Luke's gospel. As one commentator observes, it occurs almost as 
and aside. Why does he do that? Why does he heal Malchus's ear? I think because Jesus is simply practicing what he preaches. Luke 6, 27 and following, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Jesus, in healing the high priest's servant's ear, is just practicing what he preaches. So what's the lesson for us? I think the lesson is that in the context of our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, when we encounter those who are resistant to Christ, we are not to use any form of coercion to advance our cause. Invitation, yes. Persuasion, absolutely. Coercion, no. Now this, this may not sound like the kind of warning that we need to hear in this hour, I mean, how many of us presently are in danger of applying undue pressure or, or compulsion, much less violence as we engage in unbelievers in our list of five in order to see them converted? But I guess it's just the point. Given the fact that we're not even anywhere in the zip code of needing this warning, this caught me kind of through the back door as I was preparing this week. This warning tells me that we are so far on the imbalance on the other end. And you say, what's at the other end? Well, it's real simple. What's on the other side of coercion? Cowardice. Cowardice, that's the third point, which brings us to the doorstep of next week's text. If we say that we have no fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So Jesus came to shed light not only into the darkness of missional coercion, but also tactical cowardice. Jesus came to shed light into the darkness of tactical cowardice. Now, this first is the Jewish leaders in verses 52 to 53, no doubt. We read in verse 52 and 53, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers and elders who'd come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, there's no question that given the language that we see in verses 52 and 53, and what we know of the Jewish leaders to this point, is that what tended to drive them more than anything else motivationally here was the fear of man. That's why they're doing what they're doing in this moment. That's why they sought to arrest him at night with swords and clubs in a garden out of the way and not in broad daylight in the temple courts. 
Luke 20, 19 says, the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. We read the same thing in chapter 22, verse 2. They feared the people. Now, the Jewish leaders claim to be doing God's bidding. They think they're in fellowship with the Almighty, but 1 John 1, 6 is real clear. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. The Jewish leaders are walking in darkness here. They're out of fellowship with God here. And next week, Peter will be too. And if you, like me, struggle with the fear of man or worry or anxiety when it comes to saying a good word for Jesus among those who so desperately need him, then I hope that you'll make plans to come back next week as we tackle this issue head on, this issue of tactical cowardice in our mission. More on that next Sunday when we consider the denials of of Simon Peter. Let's review. As we do, let's turn our attention to the gospel. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. So Jesus came to shed light. He came to shed light into the darkness in three different areas in this text. First, into the darkness of spiritual apostasy. Second, Jesus came to shed light into the darkness of missional coercion. And third, he came to shed light into the darkness of tactical cowardice. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Given the darkness that still remains and indwells within each of us, praise our God, that this is true. John says in another place, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. The light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself tells us unequivocally that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not walk in darkness. If you're with us today and you're living in darkness, whether you count yourself a Christian or not, I want to invite you in this moment to step out into the light. You don't have to live your life under cover of darkness. Whether you're in the dark because you've never been in the light or whether you're in the dark because you've walked away from the light, It is my joy as well as my responsibility to call you right now to turn, to turn and come back to the light. If you wonder who I think I am to be invested with that sort of authority, my answer to you is that I am your servant. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you need someone to talk with and to pray with you, Pastor Aaron will be down here in front. Monica Totman will be down here in front as well after the worship gathering. Take advantage of that opportunity. 
We are here for you. Don't let this occasion pass you by. Come out of the darkness and into the light. Would you pray with me?